0: in his resurrection, and one day for all who are in Christ, this morning if you are a Christian, if you have placed your hope, your faith, your trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that means you are going to one day you be united with Jesus in glory. That in the same way that Jesus will one day be glorified at the end of all things, we as Christians will be glorified with him. And so therefore, as we saw last week, therefore... Paul last week called us to set our minds on the things that are above. This week we're going to see how the the flip side of that means that we must put to death the things that are earthly. To realize if we are to set our minds on things that are above, if we're to be united with Jesus, that means we cannot be the same anymore. Last week I asked a question that I think is provocative, at least in a culturally Christian context like Dallas. And the question is this, what if this is actually true? What if all of this that we talk about on Sundays and on a Tuesday morning like this, what if the death and resurrection of Jesus is actually true? Because I think sometimes as cultural Christians, we kind of go through the motions without actually considering that Jesus really did die on a cross, he really did rise from the dead, and one day he really will return. And if that is true, everything must change. But as I tell guys all the time, if none of that's true, then we should just go home. What a waste of time. But if it is true, everything must change. And that's Paul's message to us this morning. If Jesus died and rose and one day will return, then everything must change. And he is now calling us, therefore, to put to death the sin that is in us question for us, how do we do that? How do we put sin to death? Now, there are two great errors, I think, in trying to do that, trying to go about that work of putting sin to death. And it's two errors that have been in existence really forever because they're, they're deep in us, hardwired in us as Christians and as human beings. And one of those great errors is what I would call perfectionism. It's the belief that if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, that you must be perfect now. And that this side of heaven, you can actually achieve perfection. I was telling our staff this last week uh, about um, being at Texas A&M University. And at Texas A&M, when I was a student, there were preachers who would come on campus, which isn't that unusual for a large university. But what was unique about one of these preachers is he was preaching the message that real Christians are now sinless. That only genuine Christians, if you want to know if you are a genuine Christian, you are sinless now. And my favorite thing to do is to watch people try to make him mad, to force him into being angry and yelling. And then they would say, see, look, you just sinned. You just sinned against I guess you're going to hell too, Right? And it was so funny when I told the staff this story, one of our younger youth residents who just graduated said, hey, they're still there. (laughs) They're still on campus preaching the same message. Now, you might not actually have bought into something that extreme, but my question for you this morning is how many of us think that we have to white knuckle this, that we have to perfect ourselves, and we live in a constant battle of sin and shame? J.R. Packard uh, wrote in the introduction, I'll mention this book quite a bit today, called The Mortification of Sin. There's one book on this subject that we're going to talk about today that I would recommend to you if you've never read it. The Mortification of Sin by John Owen is excellent. In the introduction uh, to that most recent publication, J.R. Packard talks about how perfectionism played out in his own life. And I want you to listen. This is a longer quote. This goes against some of my... um, Kind of internal rules of public speaking, because especially at 7 a.m. <laughs> but I really want you to listen, because this is good, and I think some of you are going to identify with him. Jay Packard said this. He said, "I scraped my inside, figuratively speaking, to ensure that my consecration was complete." Do any of you feel that way about your Christian life? You're constantly scraping your insides to make sure that your consecration, your holiness, is complete. He said, he labored to let go and let God when temptation made its presence felt. At that time, I did not know that Harry Ironside, sometime pastor of Moody Memorial Church, Chicago, once drove himself into a full-scale mental breakdown through trying to get into a higher life as I was trying to get into. And I would not have dared to conclude as I have concluded since, now listen to this, that this higher life as described is a will of the wisp an unreality that no one has ever laid hold of at all, and that those who testify to their experience in these terms really distort what has happened to them. Did you hear what he said? That this attainment of some higher life, some upper echelon of Christianity is unattainable. He thought it was, but he didn't realize that it really drives men to madness, trying to perfect themselves. He goes on, All I knew was that the expected experience was not coming. The technique was not working. Why not? Listen to this. Well, since the teaching declared that everything depends on consecration being total, the fault had to lie in me. So I scraped my inside again to find whatever maggots of unconsecrated selfhood still lurked there and I became fairly frantic. Here's my question for you this morning. Do any of you feel frantic? Trying to attain some higher life of perfectionism. Scraping your insides to achieve a consecration that is impossible on your own. That's the danger of perfectionism. The flip side, I would argue, is equally dangerous. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Cheap grace is when we say, well, you know what? If perfectionism is unattainable then you know what? Just forget it. If, if, if to be a Christian means one day I'm going to go to heaven and, and, and living perfectly now is impossible, then just let's just forget it. I mean, let's just give up. We know we're going to heaven. Once saved, always saved. I've placed my faith in Jesus. Thank God for his grace, and let's just go on living how we're going to live. And you know what? Today I'm probably going to sin a bunch. <laughs> Thank God for grace. Tomorrow? Yeah. Probably going to sin a whole lot. Might as well just give in to it and just thank him for his grace. That is presumptive grace. That's presuming upon grace. That's taking advantage of grace. That is cheapening grace. This is what Bonhoeffer had to say about cheap grace. I want you to listen. He said, Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. Now listen to this. He says, Cheap grace is grace we bestow on ourselves. It's not the grace of God. It's not the grace that comes from Jesus through the cross. It's grace that we give ourselves. It's the kind of grace that says, "You know what? Life's hard. So just just come, do your own thing. Perfectionism is unattainable. Just kind of go on living. You're going to go to heaven anyways." He goes on. He says, "Cheap grace is a preaching of forgiveness without repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession." Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is a grace without discipleship. Now listen to this. A grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Now if perfectionism, and I think this is true, begin to rear its ugly head, especially in the 1920s in America, a huge reaction against that, I think, has infected our thinking as evangelical Christians in the last 30, 40 years. Now, Bonhoeffer wrote this years ago in Germany, (laughs) so it's nothing new. But it's the idea that, you know what, just forgive yourself. It's too hard. It's the idea that Christianity is really something for us to experience in a religion that, in the last especially 30, 40 years, I think has become Christless. A Christianity without Jesus. Because a Christianity that says, you know what? You're going to heaven. The only thing that matters is that you're going there. If you believe it's like a magic spell, just pray the prayer of going to heaven and now just wait out your time. That's cheap grace. And what I want you to see this morning is I think they're two sides of the same coin. Both of them have a moralistic view of Christianity. One says moralism is achievable, so let's white-knuckle it and try as hard as we can. The other says moralism is unachievable, and so just forget it. Neither one of them is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What I want you to see this morning is that there's a third way. Not cheap grace, not perfectionism, but our union with Christ. And if we've been united to his death and his resurrection, then we now can put on the new self and put our sin to death. Not on our own, but only in Christ. And so Paul gives us 11 different sins that he calls us to put to death. And I'm going to argue that this morning that they're really in two different categories. One is sins of desire, and the other is sin of division sins of desire and sins of division. He's going to call us to put these things to death and to put on a new self. So first, Paul calls us to put to death our sins of desire. Look with me, Colossians 3, verse 5. Paul says, put to death, therefore. Now notice the language, put to death. He's been talking about our union with Jesus, our union with his crucifixion, and it's out of that language that he's now calling us to put to death. Again in the mortification of sin by John Owen, he says, "Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. We must put our sin to death. We must crucify it with Christ." Paul says, "Put to death therefore what is earthly in you," and then he gives a list: sexual immorality and purity, passion, evil desire and covetedness which is idolatry. On account of these the wrath of God is coming." Now Paul gives similar lists elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, Rather than giving you all of them, let me just give you one example. Okay, And this is from 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. I want you to listen for the overlaps. In 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 Paul says, "...do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And again, in elsewhere, Galatians, I mean, many of his letters, he gives these lists, lists of sins of desire that he calls us in Christ to put to death. What I want you to notice this morning is what is the very first sin that he lists. Look with me. Colossians 3 verse 5. What's the very first sin that he lists? Sexual immorality. It's the very first sin he lists in 1 Corinthians 6. Sexual immorality. There's a reason for that. Because just like us, the Colossian church was infected in a culture that had a distorted view of sex and it infected them it infected the church as much as it infected the people around them and our issue with sexuality though we are experiencing some unprecedented things today the human obsession with sex is nothing new and the way that it has been distorted and removed from God's design is nothing new You can go visit Roman and Greek ruins today. And as you walk down Main Street, you will see the ruins of brothels. Not on the outside of town, on Main Street. In the Roman Empire, part of where Colossia was a part of, in the Roman Empire, sex was a part of power. The idea, and and I've recently bought a book. I say bought because I haven't read it yet. I bought it. This is a very good pastor trick. (laughs) I bought it. Maybe some of you can relate to this. It's now on my desk. And if I just leave it there long enough, I think it will kind of somehow absorb into my mind. But I bought a book that's arguing that the idea that the most recent sexual revolution in the 60s brought sexual freedom is actually not true. Because the truth is, if you go all the way back to the Roman Empire, sex was actually oppressive. And when Christianity was introduced into the Roman Empire, it actually brought freedom. You see because in those days in the Roman Empire, to be a man meant that you were supposed to for procreation, have sex with your wife. But with recreation, you were allowed to have sex with whoever you wanted to. As a show of power. As a show of ability. As a show of prestige. This is the culture that Paul is writing these words into. It's a culture that I would say is even relevant today. The very first word that he lists, it's one word, and this word in Greek is porneia. It's where we get the idea of pornography from. That Greek word porneia is translated as sexual immorality. And the way that it's used, particularly as we read here in this Greek context, what the Apostle Paul has in mind, is any kind of sexual immorality that's listed in Leviticus 18. Because again, the Colossian church was infected with a distorted view of the culture around them in the Gentile Roman world, but also in a um, in the Jewish world as well. And the kinds of sins, if you read sexual 18, sexual immorality is basically any kind of sexual recreation outside of the covenant of marriage. That God has designed sex to be good, for our good, to be a covenantal bond between man and wife. And, oh, get this, so that human beings would be made. Today, just like it was then, that gets separated. No, 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 sex is for recreation only. But, no, But Sex is for our good and for the flourishing of the covenantal union between man and wife. But it also makes human beings. I say this to our premarital class all the time. Think about that for just a second, that God has invited us into the making and creation of his image bearers. And we have distorted sex to be so much less than that. God created sex to be good. And yet we have distorted it, our cultures. Distorted, it's where it has infected us. And notice it's the very first thing that's listed. And so brothers, I know that every one of us experienced, has experienced and maybe even now is experiencing sexual brokenness. Paul is calling us to put it to death. He's calling us to put it to death. And more than that, he's saying you now in Christ have the power to see it put Death. We'll talk more about what that looks like in just a second, but just so I can pause here, you've heard us talk about our sexual sanity groups here at PCPC. If you want to know more about the groups that you could join to talk about finding freedom from sexual sin, come find me afterwards. Would love to give you a card and love to let you know about groups that you could join in even right now. But again, it's not the only sin. But it is the first because it's deep in all of us. Paul goes on from there. He says impurity, passions, evil desire. Now, these sins begin to kind of broaden from sexual immorality, but they still have a connection to it. The idea of impurity would be any kind of uncleanliness, any kind of moral corruption. Certainly it includes sexual immorality, but it's broader. Then he talks about passions. The most common translation for that word would be lusts. Certainly, lust has to do with our flesh, has to do with sex, but we lust after all kinds of things, do we not? And so there are passions in us that Paul has been calling us to put to death. Lusts in our flesh, he says evil desire. The same word is used in James 1.14. I want you to listen to how James uses this word. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. This idea of evil desire is the idea that we have a propensity as sinners. We have a propensity as human beings who are fallen to give in to temptation. Those evil desires, that, that tendency in us, Paul is calling us to put to death. And then lastly, he lists covetousness, that's such a hard word to say, covetousness, is that right? I always want to add an extra syllable, an extra syllable, (laughs) covetousness. Let's give it a much easier word to say, greed, greed, that we, deep in us, were greedy, Our sin has made us want other people's things and stuff. Why is that one of the Ten Commandments, to not covet? Because it means we're not content. We're not satisfied with what God has given us, and so we want more. And so whether your greed leads you to wanting um, something different in your life, whether it's a different job or a different outcome, or if it's money or things, possessions, Paul is saying we must put it to death. So all of these things are all in really one category. They're sins of desire. And what I think we need to recognize is, at, at the end of the day, what Paul and these sins of desire are really, they're, they're idols. And notice what he says. He says, all of these things, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The way this Greek sentence is put together, it's not that only greed or covetousness is idolatry. It's that they all are. All of these things are idolatry because they're all in us. They're desires in us. And I think what could be really helpful for us here is the teaching from St. Augustine, who taught that really our problem is that we have our desires, our loves are disordered. It's not that we fail to love, it's that we love all kinds of things. And that our loves have actually been turned upside down. They've been disordered. And so with each one of these, it's that you have a warped sense of desire. Is sex bad? No. No, it's not. It's actually good. God made it for marriage, for covenantal union. But it's been distorted by the fall. It's been disordered, right? If you go down this list, these different things, all of these have to do with desire. God has given us passions and desires for good that sin has disordered and made into idolatry. And Paul says we must put it to death. But it's not just the sins of desire Paul's calling us to put to death. He's calling us to also put to death the sins of division. But before we go to that, I want you to hear one thing if you hear nothing else. I want you to hear this. There is good news. As we've just listed this list and we look at the list in a second, there's good news. Because undoubtedly you're going to find yourself somewhere on this list. It's exhaustive. It's supposed to be. But again, if this morning you begin, right now even in this moment, you're trending towards perfectionism (laughs) and, and feeling shame, or you're turning towards cheap grace and saying, well, because of my shame, I just want to free myself of that. I want you to notice the language that Paul uses in verse seven. Notice what he says. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. In these you too once walked. In other words, not who you are anymore. All of this is in the past. If you are in Christ, Paul says, you're a new creation. The old is dead, the new has come. These are no longer who you are anymore. You are in Christ. He'll put it in another way. Again, this is 1 Corinthians 6. That same list that he gave in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Now listen to this, verse 11. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. But he doesn't stop there. Who are you now? He says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. If you find yourself on this list and you find yourself even now as you read this list trending towards perfectionism or cheap grace, hear these words of Paul, and such were some of you. It's not who you are anymore. And so put your sin to death. John Owen put it this way. Again, he said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. How do you do that? This is what Owen says, set faith at work on Christ for the killing of your sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Live in this, and you will die a conqueror. You will, through the good providence of God, live to see your lest dead at his feet." We put our sin to death only through the death of Jesus. Not only our sins of desire, but also our sins of division. We'll now speed up just a little bit. Verse 8. He now says, no, but now you must put them all away, and gives a new list, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. A different category of sins, sins of division, sins that would cause divisiveness in the church and in the kingdom of God. Now as you look at this list, we, we tend to not think of these sins as as heinous as sexual immorality. We tend to think, well, well, these are kind of not that big of a deal. The other ones, that's the bigger bigger list. But Paul is elevating these things and saying, this is just as dangerous. Division in the family of God, division in the church is destructive to his kingdom. And so here's the list, anger, wrath, malice, slander. If you think if any of those are good for you now, now then it says, okay, well, obscene talk. <laughs> right? Are any of us guiltless? No. And particularly these last couple of years, how much of this has come out of us even as Christians? We see it all in our culture, but it's infected the church as well. <laughs> Why would division be so destructive to the kingdom of God? Because our union with Jesus. See, the thing about our union with Christ is that if I'm united to Jesus and you are united to Jesus, is that a different Jesus in you that is in me? I know we've all made him in our own image, so maybe he looks a little different. But is that the same Jesus? It is. So if I'm united to the same Jesus that you are, what does that make us? means that in Christ, because of our union with him, we've now been united to one another. So when there is division in the church, division in the people of God, it harms our understanding of our union with Christ. Notice what Paul says. Paul puts it this way. He says, verse 11... Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. However, the Colossian church might identify themselves according to these people groups, he says, there's none of that anymore. Christ is in all of you, and you are all one. The reason why sins of division are so destructive because it divides our union with Jesus and that strikes at the heart of Jesus. In the upper room, just before he went to the cross, Jesus prayed in John 17 that we as the church would be one as God is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the same way that Jesus is united to his heavenly Father, he prayed that we would be united to one another. And so yes, anger Malice, hatred, wrath, slander, obscene talk, these things divide the heart of Christ. They do injury to the church. And what I want you to see this morning is they're just as heinous as sexual morality. It's not that sexual morality is less heinous. It's that divisiveness is just as heinous. We must put it to death. So lastly, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we not give in to perfectionism? Not give into to cheap grace? The last thing I want you to know: Paul calls us to put on the new self. Look at verse ten. It's where we're going to end this morning. The Apostle Paul says, "And put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator." That language "put on" is like putting on clothing. Think about it. You all have a closet. This morning as you got dressed, you had all kinds of things to choose from and you could just put it on. And that's the kind of imagery that is being used here. That if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. And you can put this on now, it's yours in Christ Jesus. Don't just leave it locked behind a door, but but put it on. It's the same kind of imagery that's been used throughout the Bible. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. And they sin. They're naked and they're ashamed. They're exposed before God. They're hiding from him and they're hiding from one another. And What does God do? He covers their shame. He clothes them in skins. It's the language that the prophet Isaiah uses. Isaiah 61 verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels." Now, I admit that some of this language is lost on us as men. Though you all got dressed this morning, my guess is you spent about two minutes doing it, right? You did not labor over adorning yourself in a vest, my guess. If you live with women like I do, there's laboring, right? Multiple kinds. Um, but there's laboring, right? There's, they, they spend time adorning themselves. But that's the imagery that's used here. That God has not just clothed us functionally. He has adorned us. He has made us beautiful in Christ. It's the image that we get in the book of Revelation. Revelation 21. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We have been given the robes of Jesus. On the cross, he took off his kingly robes and he hung naked, exposed and in shame on a cross. And then he rose from the dead. And he has now given us those robes, the robes of righteousness. And Paul is saying, put them on. Don't leave them behind a closet door. Put it on. Put on the new self. It's the same language he's going to use, Colossians 3, verse 12. We'll look at this passage next week. You can work ahead. Put on them, Paul says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We'll look at that next week put it on clothe yourself in the righteousness of Christ how do we do that it's not perfectionism and it's not cheap grace it's only done by clothing yourself in the union of Jesus and the only way you can do that is the ordinary means of grace that we talk about god has given us everything we need to clothe ourselves in Christ he's given us prayer How many of us avoid prayer and give ourselves into perfectionism or cheap grace? And yet he's allowed, the God of the universe has invited you to talk to him. (laughs) To ask for help in your time of need. To know that we have a high priest who sympathizes with us. He knows what it means to be tempted. He now lives to intercede for you. And so Pray. Ask God that he would put these earthly things to death in you. By the way, that is not a binary prayer. That is not a, oh, let me pray that today and I'm good. (laughs) That is a constant prayer for the rest of our lives this side of heaven. But there's victory. There's victory. Because and such were some of you. But not only has given us prayer, he's given us the word. Why do we come here on Tuesday mornings to study God's word? It's not because we feel like we have to. It's not because we feel like we're this is the ordinary, just traditional thing to do, although some of you might feel that way. It's because we actually believe that this is the words of life and this is our food, that there's no other place for us to go, that our, the only other options are perfectionism or cheap grace, and this gives us a third way, to put yourself in the word and to daily remind yourself that Christ died, Christ rose again, and he's coming again. And he has called us to now in Christ to put our sin to death. He's called us to do that because Christ has put our sin to death on the cross. Let me pray for you. Send you to your tables. You have much to talk about. I'll be praying for you. Next week, if you want to work ahead, Paul is then going to give in detail what this new self looks like and what it means to put it on. So you can work ahead in Colossians 3, verse 12. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel We thank you that you've called us not to perfectionism or cheap grace, but you've called us to be united to your son, Jesus Christ, that our sin would be put to death at the cross. So Lord, by your spirit, would you enable us through the ordinary means of prayer in the Bible to see what is earthly in us be put to death. We know that this side of heaven, that will be a battle that we fight every single day. But would you give us victory? Give us victory even in this moment, this day so that when we wake up tomorrow, we'd wake up to even new mercies to fight the battle all over again. Thank you that you've not sent us to war on our own, but you have sent us our captain who is Christ, who leads not from behind, but is in front of us and is fighting our battles. We pray that you would unite us to him today. In Jesus' name, amen.